Welcome to Research Recap on JP Morgan's Making Sense podcast channel. I'm Christian Malik, Global Head of Energy Strategy and Head of MBA Oil and Gas Equity Research at JP Morgan. Today, I'm joined by my colleague Shika Chaturvedi, Head of Global Natural Gas and Natural Gas Liquid Strategy. In light of JP Morgan's recent Global Energy Conference, which was held on November 6th and 7th in London, we're here to discuss the key factors shaping energy markets today and themes since 2024. Shika, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Christian, for having me. Shika, it was great to see you at our conference in London, and I hope you had a fruitful trip. And I think to start with, it'd be great to hear your takeaways from the conference and your investor meetings. Sure. So we started off by hosting a panel on global gas with the experts from Oxford Institute for Energy Studies. And what I thought was pretty interesting is that the discussion that they had regarding the global gas market really mirrored what we were thinking about and something that we had just put out recently from JP Morgan, which is our inaugural edition of our global gas analyzer, which really goes over the entire global gas balance through 2030 and is a collaboration between all of the energy groups across asset classes. So it really has a robust feel to it. And ultimately what we found through this panel and in talking with our investor clients is that there was a lot of surprise in the volatility that the TTF price has been showing of late to supply side risk and the way that it's been holding the premium into the market. We've seen you know, a different set of supply risks throughout since June of this year that has manifested in the TTF market, starting with Norwegian outages that were a little bit stronger than the market had anticipated. Then we moved into August, the Australian strikes, risk, which obviously never really stopped any sort of LNG flow, but certainly had the market a little bit nervous about what the supply side risk could be. And then we followed that with the Israeli war and what that could mean with Israel that had turned off their gas fields. Now it is back on at the time of this recording, but ultimately what that means for Egyptian LNG and even the potential for Qatari flows to be blocked in the Strait of Ormuz. And so one of the things that we've realized is that there's just really not been enough that's been done in the European market to save it from price volatility. We haven't grown in storage. We've only grown in entry points for supply to come into the continent. And so it really has exposed this market to that sort of price volatility. So it's quite interesting that, I mean, the geopolitics has clearly found a way to create volatility for price. But in the end, storage seems quite healthy. But I can sort of understand that in some ways because you've had very consistent supply through Russia as a pipeline input into Europe, and now you don't, leaving it more exposed to the other continents in terms of availability supply. So with all that in mind, how will these price rallies play out? What's your forecast for global gas markets in 24? Yeah, so, I mean, and that's exactly right. There's a lot of changing dynamics going into 24. We expect for Ukraine not to renew the contract that they have with Russia. So Russian gas flows should start to dwindle down in 24 even further from what we've already seen. But I think generally speaking, it does feel like the existing sort of demand destruction that's been out there in Europe, particularly on the industrial demand side, as well as the residential and commercial side, some sort of behavioral change that we're seeing in energy usage is likely to stick around through 24. And structurally, that's going to definitely help the European market. I think it's important to note that winter weather is so important, and particularly these next few months coming up and shaping sort of price trajectory for 2024. But if we are to have a normal winter, 
I think generally speaking, we're probably looking at a more bearish outlook from a price level perspective, something very similar to what we saw this past summer as we start to fill up pretty quickly because our exit right now for end March storage is around 55% full. So that's quite robust. And then ultimately, we're going to have to see what kind of supply side risks or what kind of demand side risks for potentially the Asian markets manifest themselves in the global market to really understand the price volatility that's out there. So as of right now for 2024, our calendar price average is somewhere around 38 euros per megawatt hour. Our summer 2024 pricing goes down towards 30 euros per megawatt hour. And I think that's really in line with the idea that if you do exit healthily at the end of this winter, you are fine for this summer coming forward. But just a very important but, if you do have a colder than normal winter, one standard deviation weather event for December through February is about nine percentage points. If the trajectory of the end March storage trajectory falls below 50%, I think the refill risk and the restock risk in summer 24 could certainly suggest higher prices. So we're just really going to have to watch how these next three to four months play out in the European market. Turning to you, Christian, what's your key takeaways from the conference and what are key themes into 2024? I think, first of all, you know, we should talk about the conference in terms of some of the points around supply demand in line with our Global Energy Outlook report. Most did talk about this rising supply demand deficit, but I like the fact you talked about a big but. I think the big but in oil supply demand is when do we see this deficit? And I always find that you can create deficits as much as you can create valuation price targets. It's all a bit of an art rather than the science. And really, I think what we saw as a common theme is the fact that marginal cost is going up. The marginal cost to produce oil, whether it's shale, whether it's non-OPEC supply, is rising. And the reason it's rising is because the cost of debt is going up, the cost of equity is going up. And if you look at the majors in terms of the clearing price to cover CapEx dividend and, and cash returns, is close to 70, 75. In fact, one of the things I noticed when I interviewed a lot of the chairmen and CEOs of the majors is how dedicated they are to execution, which is great. But really, to execute, you've got to have a smaller pipeline of projects. This is quite unusual and different to previous cycles where they were essentially trying to expand as much as they possibly can and execution ended up being a problem. So the fact that they're focusing on a smaller scale of projects where growth rates are closer to 1% to 2% of oil as opposed to larger scale of projects means that, yes, they can deliver, but it just means less production in the future. And even against that, the marginal cost is still rising. So CapEx discipline is very much a key theme. And I suspect a lot of it's due to trauma. The companies have seen what happens when they overinvest. And so this generation of management teams will focus on either buying the volumes and or delivering what they have in the hopper without being tempted to grow volumes significantly more. The other point, I think, is just OPEC being seen as the steering wheel of the market. We had lots of different officials coming over from the Middle East to talk about the fact that they also want to see production coming from other parts of the world. When people ask me, oh, surely shale production growth is bearish, surely non-OPEC supply growth is bearish, not necessarily. Because in reality, that production growth is needed. You can't just rely purely on OPEC spare capacity to meet future demand. So the fact that we do have shale production growth coming and we have non-OPEC supply or non-OPEC non-US supply should be seen as bullish in that as we start to see tightness, we know that we're not going to see massive spikes 
into the future. And really that kind of segues into the second edition of our global energy outlook, which we've also contributed, as you've done, Shika, through the big gas note with all our global colleagues. And one of the conclusions of the global energy outlook, or the GEO as we call it, is emerging supply demand deficits around 11 exajoules. So one exajoule is one to the 18 joules, driven by underinvestment with $1 trillion of cumulative capex as a shortfall. And that's where we've been hearing through the conference the need for more investments, the focus on execution, as I mentioned, and ultimately leaning on OPEC to fill both deficits and surpluses to make sure that Yes, it's going to be a roller coaster ride. We have told investors in our super cycle thesis, put your seatbelts on. But even with your seatbelts, we will see volatility. And that volatility can be massaged better through OPEC stepping in, given it's firmly at the steering wheel of the market. We're more worried that they lose control of the steering wheel if we see spikes. And that's something we've talked about in our super cycle thesis. Great. And so, Christian, speaking of supercycle, it's a big word that's out there in the energy markets today. Are we on the cusp of what we call a supercycle? What do you think about that? In reality, I think we're past the first innings. I think it started in 2020, and that's when we went bullish. Obviously, it was much more harder to be bullish when oil was negative. And we talked about we had cause of peak demand, oil at 40 forever. We're now somewhere around 65 at the back end, so we have come a long way. But in reality, Shika, I still think we're just getting warmed up. We turned bearish last December as a result of an excess of dark inventories in the market, lots of sanctioned oil being unsanctioned in some ways, that production still flowed. We took profits on that in April, and it's moving sideways since then and went bullish again in September, owing to three things, higher rates, high cost of equity, ESG peak demand fears. Now, I should argue higher for longer. This is not just about a sort of cyclical aberration in rates or higher cost of equity. Now, when I think about what's changed, what's new, well, first of all, if you look at the sector, um, capital is still short for oil and gas. These higher rates, which is something Mark Kolonovic has talked about in terms of a strategy view for JP Morgan, means higher cost of debt. So it's just harder to get access to capital than it used to. But that's allied with a higher cost of equity. I talked about break-evens being higher, which makes them structurally want to return more cash. If you land on Earth today, you see these companies returning 30% of their market cap, you probably think they're shutting down, but they're not. They have to return that cash back because they're oil companies, and that ultimately pushes the marginal cost of oil higher. And finally, and sort of links to this point, is the institutional policy-led pressure on climate ESG and peak demand fears. You know, as a big proponent of the super cycle, I love the term peak demand. What does peak demand mean? It means discipline. You know, coining the term, the gift that keeps giving, it's sort of like the stick that keeps giving. We don't believe in peak demand. I think we'll have many cycles. This is not the twilight cycle. But in the context of peak demand, it does help as a useful measure to keep these companies disciplined around investment and ultimately keeping shareholders happy. So all of the above is a bit like a vicious cycle where we're calling oil an oil super cycle with structurally higher prices and higher volatility. And somehow it's slightly different to gas, as you pointed out, Sheikha, in the analysis with lower prices, but also higher volatility. So assume sort of oil is like on an upward trend with unsustainable lows, whereas gas is on a downward trend with unsustainable highs. Yeah, definitely. And finally, I mean, we can't get away without talking about energy transition. What are some of the obstacles corporates are facing and how can these be overcome? Well, you're right. There is no silver bullet. And I think, you know, this transition tried to be compressed into sort of a, a decade or a multi-year journey. It's really a multi-generational journey. 
in our energy outlook, we framed four axes of the transition or what we call in our energy outlook, which is on one axis, you've got generation of energy. And we looked at all the sources of generation and investments. On the other axis, you've got the systems. It's a crude way to bucket a lot of different things, including infrastructure, grid, storage, transmission, essentially getting these jewels to the end consumer. And then the third axis was time, acknowledging the time taken to deliver generation and systems. And finally, the fourth was policy. Policy not being universal by type of energy. And what do I mean by that is that we've seen green energy prioritized by governments, whereas sort of the dirty fuels being polarized away. Now, the implication of that is that we're producing a lot of clean energy. You know, the generation is record high, but the systems are lagging significantly behind, i.e. the storage, the grids, the infrastructure. Now, what that does is mean that you have this disconnect, this dislocation between the green energy generated, but the consumer is just not getting it. He's not getting those electrons. So what does the consumer do, particularly in the EM world, where there's massive growth in demand for energy, huge population growth? Some countries don't even have the kind of access to energy. We have 1 billion people on the planet with no energy access or energy poverty. What do they do? They go back to the traditional fuels because they're not going to wait. They still need those fuels to improve their livelihoods. As a result, that demand is going to end up going back to traditional fuels. So our view on energy transition, it's going to be multi-fuel, multi-generational, but we have to be very pragmatic around what is realistic in terms of energy generation and what is not, particularly given the systems are where the key choke points are in the transition. So I think just from here, I'll summarize. As far as our views are concerned, we do have quite an unusual setup where we're very bullish energy equities, bullish oil, but slightly more conservative and bearish on the gas piece, given the LNG outlook. And that creates a lot of bifurcation, a lot of opportunities and equities to essentially position ourselves for companies who are disproportionately exposed to oil. And those that are more traditionally exposed to gas or underlying gas, we'd be more cautious. But I think LNG trading is probably, given Sheikha's points of volatility, one of the green shoots where we could see significant cash being made, taking advantage of what will very much be a volatile super cycle. So put your seatbelts on, but it's going to be a great ride. And Sheikha, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Research Recap. If you've enjoyed this conversation, we hope you'll review, rate, and subscribe to JP Morgan's Making Sense to stay on top of the latest industry news and trends. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please read J.P. Morgan Research Reports related to its contents for more information, including important disclosures. Copyright 2023, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co., all rights reserved.